Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I've Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So Samantha, I know, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. I know we've talked about how we grew up in a small town. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like it comes up all the time. But were you ever like interested in any aspect of farming? Did you ever get involved in anything like that? Because I know uh, my school had some organizations where you could like go and hang out at a farm <laughs> right. or like go visit uh, an orchard in, in your case, perhaps specifically, but anything like that? Yeah. So we did have the FFA and it was a huge part of our school, which is the Future Farmers of America. Mm-hmm. That was almost as popular as being a football player. And if you were both, oh my God, wow. you're the, you know, the school god. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a part of the 4-H, which mm-hmm. kind of can incorporate gardening mm-hmm. and such. I just, yeah, I am not great with plants and veggies or anything that needs to be grown from dirt, apparently, (laughs) or seeds. I I mean, I'm not the worst, but definitely Mm -hmm. not the best. I would not trust me with too much of complicated uh, plants or Mm -hmm. veggies. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. You? you? Yes. Uh, Similar. Uh, We had, I was involved with 4-H. I will admit and less to do with like real interest on my part and more that I had a crush on a guy in it. It was Uh, like a time to spend time together. And we did. We milked that cow together. Oh, (laughs) Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Sometimes I, I had friends who worked on farms and sometimes I would help out with their chores. And I think I liked it in sort of that, this is fun for one day kind of thing. Yeah. Where I did enjoy it. And I really liked... Like I had a friend who we would go pick stuff and like get milk and eggs, all that stuff from their farm and we would eat it. And it something about that just felt so cool to me Absolutely. and so like lovely. I too don't have a lot of luck growing things, but it's one of the things that I, I wish I did. And I, I always tell myself if I ever did get a plot of land, I would try to, I would love to have a garden with food that I could eat maybe one day. Yeah. I mean, my partner's all about it. And he's like, we need to learn because there's a food shortage coming. So I'm like, you might be right. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was recently, I recently thought about that. What would I do if I couldn't, there were no grocery stores. I was like, oh, (laughs) that wouldn't be good. Well, we recently did an episode of Monday Mini on unions. And we mentioned Dolores Huerta and her work in in unionizing uh, farm workers. So uh, we wanted to bring back this classic all about her and all about the work that she did. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And earlier this week, we talked about women and farming and agriculture. And today we want to spotlight a woman who has been highly influential when it comes to female farm workers and also women in union organizing more generally. And that is the incredible trailblazing Dolores Huerta. Yeah, Dolores Huerta, her accomplishments are outstanding. They are amazing. They're enough to blow you away, but it almost feels like she is 
more known for how unknown she is compared to her partner in activism, Cesar Chavez. Yeah, so Dolores Huerta is a labor activist and was a leading figure of the Chicano civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. And she, along with Cesar Chavez, formed the United Farm Workers. And some people might be familiar with the nationwide grape boycott that they spearheaded in the 1960s that we'll talk about more. And she was influential in devising the entire strike and also being a spokesperson for these migrant farm workers, a lot of them of Mexican descent, who had no one else to speak on their behalf, really, before. And before we get into who she is and her uh, biography, I just want to offer this quote from a woman farm worker um, that we found in a Dolores Huerta reader, uh, who said, it was Dolores who showed us not to be afraid to fight for a better life for ourselves and our children. And she did it at a time when women didn't have a voice. So who is this incredible woman? Well, this incredible woman was born Dolores Clara Fernandez on April 10th, 1930, in the mining town of Dawson, New Mexico. And her parents were pretty impressive people themselves. Her dad, Juan Fernandez, was a miner and migrant farmer who eventually became not only a union activist, but who also served in the New Mexico state legislature. Her mom, Alicia, divorced Juan early on when Dolores was pretty young. And she ended up moving Dolores and her two brothers to Stockton, California, made famous by the book Grapes of Wrath, uh, where there was a large multicultural agricultural community with lots of working class and even poorer families. Yeah, this community was largely made up of Mexican, Filipino, African-American, Japanese and Chinese uh, migrant workers. And Dolores herself had a slightly more privileged upbringing. She didn't work in the fields. Uh, she was also bilingual and later attended college. Um, but I mean, she was still being raised by a single mom for a little while who was holding down two jobs. I believe she was working in a factory and then also was waiting tables. And then she eventually remarried a couple of times. Um, but growing up, Dolores uh, palled around a lot with her brothers. And she cites growing up with her brothers as being really influential for later working largely with men like Cesar Chavez and all of the other union activists around her. Yeah, she also cites her mom's independence, the fact that her mom, Alicia, worked her way up from jobs in a factory and also waiting tables to owning her own restaurant and running a hotel with her second husband as shaping her later feminism and her drive to succeed. Yeah, and she was also an active Girl Scout till she was 18. Um, she even today cites her Girl Scout troop leader as being one of her major role models. So props to the Girl Scouts. Um, but when it comes to the social justice that would become her life, she talks about how simply by virtue of growing up as a person of color at the time that she did, although you could say the same thing for people of color today, she continually witnessed 
instances of social injustice and flat out racism. Um, she mentioned at one point a racist teacher who accused her of stealing another student's work and also uh, her brother being beaten up because of a zoot suit that he was wearing at one time, which was a popular World War II era Latino fashion. So it, it wasn't always easy growing up. But one thing that really drove her, and this was something that was hit home hard by Mario Garcia, who's the editor of that Dolores Huerta reader that Kristen cited a minute ago, was her religion. She grew up very Catholic, is still very devoutly Catholic, but... She really saw her faith, Garcia writes, through the lens of social justice, especially for the poor and powerless. She was driven by her spirituality and her faith that she and her kids and her family and people around her, you can't just sit and rest on your laurels and take care of just yourself. You have to look out for the people who are suffering around you, too. Well, and speaking again to the influence of her mom, uh, she would also give hotel rooms for free to very poor migrant families that might be coming through. So it was something that was very much modeled for her as well. And when she grows up, she starts to head toward a more traditional wife and mother role. She gets her teaching credentials from the University of Pacific Delta College in Stockton. And so she starts teaching. She gets married. She has two kids. But then she gets divorced, which is a really big deal as a devout Catholic and particularly from, you know, an Hispanic culture as well. And she really started this time to chafe against those cultural expectations of being a teacher and a wife and a mom. Not that she didn't enjoy teaching, but she felt like it wasn't she wasn't doing enough necessarily. Yeah. So this future charismatic leader notices that the children that she's teaching uh, were coming to school hungry. They didn't have shoes. And so this is when she says, look, I love teaching. I love these children, but I can do more for these families outside of the classroom as an activist. So in the early 1950s, as these early stirrings of activism are bubbling up within her, this is happening amid her second marriage and also getting involved with Stockton's community service organization, the CSO, where she learns about grassroots community organizing under Fred Ross Sr. And even in interviews today, she continually cites Fred Ross as being highly influential for the model of organizing that she would learn and would then apply to the United Farm Workers. She alongside Cesar Chavez. But the things that she initially learned through the CSO were highly gendered. There were women-oriented duties that she first took up. Yeah, and so working within this Mexican-American self-help association, she worked to register voters, teach citizenship and naturalization classes. She advocated for neighborhood improvements, things like streetlights and playgrounds, and, of course, was tasked with, uh, you know, setting up for meetings. And this activism and community organizing was very gender segregated at the time because it really wasn't socially acceptable for women and especially moms like Huerta to drive around sometimes after dark going into strangers homes because Fred Ross and the CSO model was all based around meeting people in their homes 
consciousness raising kinds of things, talking about the day to day issues, because Fred Ross really believed that the way that you enact these bigger changes is by addressing the everyday needs of these often impoverished communities. Yeah, and so it's at this point when she's driving around working with people in the community that she starts to see how people in her community are living. And this is a huge turning point for her activism. This is the point in 1955 when she quits teaching and meets up with the CSO executive director, Cesar Chavez. And as her activism picks up, though, her marriage breaks down because her second husband was not really interested in having an activist wife. She was kind of violating a lot of her wifely expectations. So the marriage dissolves. And as that's happening, though, in 1960, Huerta founds the Agricultural Workers Association, where she really focuses in on setting up voter registration drives and lobbying local governments again for neighborhood improvements. And then two years later, Chavez and Huerta join forces after Chavez resigns from the CSO after the organization declines to take up the cause for migrant farm laborers. And he's like, you know who I need to join me is this Dolores Huerta, because by this point, she'd really made a name for herself for being completely devoted to this activism and really invested. I mean, she she had lost a marriage. She quit her job. I mean, she was all in. And so Chavez invites Huerta to join him to form the United Farm Workers. Well, so, you know, we've talked about her community activism, neighborhood association type things like let's improve the neighborhood. Let's get streetlights out there. Let's make sure kids aren't coming to school with no shoes on. So what does all of this have to do with farm workers? Why are they forming groups like the United Farm Workers? Because they hadn't been able to form groups and organize ever before. Because migrant farmers have been at the bottom of the societal ladder since the get-go. I mean, we could go back and just say, well, example one, slavery. Then after that is outlawed. You know, you, you do have migrant farm workers almost always being composed of recent immigrants and rarely being paid living wages, and they're usually taken advantage of by larger agribusinesses and embedded throughout all of this is racism because, I mean, it it is usually people of color coming in to take these jobs and white people historically saying, well, you don't really, you know, deserve much better than this. And this is all that you're really good for, this kind of menial labor. Go out in the fields, Mm -hmm. pick this, harvest this, feed us. But at the same time, Yelling at those people for taking jobs. Of course. When when that is the only arena that we will shuttle them into. Yeah, PBS uh, did an entire series on migrant farm workers and the United Farm Workers. And in one of their posts wrote, whatever group was the poorest and the most recent arrival to this country would end up in the fields. So back in 1936, the National Labor Relations Act had given many American workers the right to organize, but not Farm workers, because the only way that the government could get this through uh, and get Southern politicians to support it was to exclude farm workers from the ability to organize. And there had been attempts to organize and strike in the fields, but really none of them had made any lasting improvements for the workers. Yeah. And these were and continue to be some of the most marginalized 
employment groups in the United States. And when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico relationship and really how Huerta and Chavez and, and that entire group would get involved in California starts really in 1942 with the U.S.-Mexico Bracero program, which brings thousands of Mexican workers into U.S. fields in order to make up for uh, jobs that were left by soldiers going to fight in World War II. Yeah, and the program lasted through 1964, and the people participating in it were routinely and illegally taken advantage of by growers who wanted to undercut wages and break strikes. They just wanted to watch their own bottom line and did not care about the conditions that these workers were experiencing. Yeah, and so when we get to the 1960s and talk about the kinds of things that Huerta was seeing among the people you know, who were working in these massive farms in California, not only did she talk a lot about just the emotional impact of of seeing these families living in dirt floor homes that with walls stuffed with newspapers for installation. There are also just horrific working conditions. I mean, on, on the one hand, you have them being paid poorly, maybe 75 cents an hour, but also just in terms of their day-to-day health, the death rate, for instance, of migrant laborers' babies was 125% higher than the national average. And for adults, their life expectancy was just 49 years old, which is about 20 years below the average of the time. Not to mention these workers were likelier to get sick with things like the flu, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. Plus, I mean, they're being exposed to horrifically poisonous pesticides day in and day out. And one of the tactics eventually um, during the uh, strikes that would eventually happen would be for the big farm owners, the big growers to dump pesticides on these protesters as they're protesting. And you might be thinking at this point, well, why why was no one seeing this as a problem? Why, why wasn't anyone concerned about these impoverished barrios? Basically, there were lots of racist assumptions that, well, you know what? These workers could pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, but, I mean, they just drink away their earnings. They're just generally inferior. They're not smart enough. So, I mean, they're just kind of doing it to themselves. Well, which is the stereotype that we have put on every ethnic and social and economic minority that has been in this country forever. And we talked about that in our Spicy Latinas podcast about the evolution of this stereotype of Mexican descended workers in particular or Mexican born workers as being lazy. But it's it's amid this U.S.-Mexico Bracero program in the 1950s that Fred Ross and the community service organization in California really began laying the groundwork for farm workers to be able to organize, like Kristen said, by focusing on those everyday issues like citizenship and child care. Because if you can't even handle the day to day, how are you expected to rise up and fight the system? And speaking of rising up and fighting the system, we're next going to talk about how Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, and the United Farm Workers tried to do that starting in the 1960s when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the show. Well, rising up and taking on these massively influential and wealthy 
agricultural growers was exactly what Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez wanted to do. And it was very much a David and Goliath kind of situation when they set out in 1962 to start the United Farm Workers. Yeah, after years of dedicated uh, activism and community involvement in 1963, Dolores Huerta successfully managed to secure aid for dependent families, which is disability insurance for California farm workers. Again, it's like she's taking sort of what she knows, working from the ground up, working from the small to the large with just people in her community to sort of doing the same thing for workers. I mean, she's not kind of out of the gate saying, let's tear apart the entire system. She's like, can we just get them some insurance for their families? And that was unprecedented, mm-hmm. being able to get that insurance. But two years later, in 1965, the Delano Grape Strike begins. And this is what sort of everybody, this is the image in everybody's minds when you talk about Huerta, especially pairing up with Chavez. And so it's her idea, though, to boycott Grapes. Chavez was saying, let's let's boycott potatoes and the potato growers. But Huerta was like, we've got to market this right. People associate grapes and wineries and wine with California, not potatoes. So let's do this instead. Yeah. She was like, well, people are going to think potatoes and Idaho. So they decided to support this grape strike. And and this also is where we get probably the most famous image of Dolores Huerta from the time where she is uh, standing up, holding a sign above her head that says Huelga, H-U-E-L-G-A, which which is Spanish for strike. And her prominent position was really influential in effectively boycotting table grapes across the United States because as a woman, she helped female consumers a long way away from California identify with this strike as well. Yeah, and this led to, at its height... The boycott being 14 million people strong. This was not just a little thing happening off somewhere on the fringes in California. This was big national news. And of course, this is around the time that she coins si se puede, meaning yes, we can. And yes, Obama, President Obama did take that phrase for his campaign. Yeah, he joked when he was giving her the Presidential Medal of Honor in 2011 that uh, he did steal si se puede from her and was really relieved that she was okay with it. <laughs> um, but, but a lot of times, too, Si Se Puede is, uh, is attributed to Chavez. Mm-hmm. But again, it was uh, Huerta's brilliant idea. And I want to also mention that we are very much collapsing all of the nuances and the back and forth of this strike and of this really like five to ten year time period into these few bullet points that we have because we don't have time to go into all of the back and forth because it really was an intense struggle and negotiation, ongoing negotiations between Huerta and Chavez and these huge growers and also other groups of other other unionized groups being involved and not being involved. And then also the California state government. I mean, it was it was not an easy thing to tackle. And one of the tools that these large growers used at one point against the United Farm Workers was to bring in the Teamsters Union uh, to essentially try to break up the strikes. And so in 1966, the United Farm Workers merged with the AFL-CIO, otherwise risking erasure by the Teamsters because, I mean, that group was just 
too powerful at the time. I mean, and and through all of these uh, confrontations between Teamsters and or the growers, they were really risking life and limb and not just Huerta and Chavez. All of these migrant farm workers who were striking, standing in picket lines. Yeah, I mean, we already mentioned just the act of dropping pesticide on these protesters. But, I mean, there was so much more to it. And while Chavez and Huerta did really emphasize the issue of nonviolence, Chavez talks about being inspired by Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Huerta and others were routinely targeted and threatened at gunpoint at times. And at one point, she was even taken hostage. Yeah, and I mean, and, and two of the strikers were killed at one point as well. Um, so this was, I mean, this wasn't just a, you know, a casual negotiation, just sitting across the table from someone, writing the little, you know, number on a napkin and sliding it across. It was not polite. And also, too, um, in 1969, the Delano growers signed historic contracts with the UFWOC. But the agribusiness scheming really didn't end there because then you have Salinas lettuce growers also in California signing on again with the Teamsters Union in these kinds of sweetheart deals to edge out the United Farm Workers from getting involved. And so then what is where to do? Well, we got to have a lettuce boycott. That's right. And the grape growers would end up pulling a similar move after their contracts expired. Uh, and Teamster thugs were using violence against the strikers again. And this is the point when the two farm worker strikers were killed on a picket line. So like Kristen said, I mean, things are a little tense. It's it's not a good or safe situation. And throughout all of this, throughout all the violence and the tension and the underhandedness on the part of the growers, Huerta was the lead negotiator. And she talks about that. She says, yeah, I think I caught him off guard. And when she's talking about the growers responding to her and having to deal with her as the negotiator, she said, yeah, you know, not only did it catch them off guard, I think it made them feel guilty. Yeah, to have to negotiate with a woman. She said that they always preferred to try to negotiate with Cesar, but <laughs> she was usually the one because she was very skillful yeah. with negotiations. And um, it, it's interesting that her her gender as well was was a bit of a wild card. Well, I mean, she had such perspective to bring to the negotiating table. So not only is she personally... Uh, a mother. She's been a wife. She has, you know, many children, but she has this experience as a teacher and she has her incredible faith driving her forward and her whole life experience of watching her father in New Mexico with his uh, activist efforts and her mother, you know, being her own, standing on her own two feet. And so this is a woman who's really not to be trifled with. And she was just generally good at debate, period. Apparently she was really great at just throwing down facts at the perfect time to uh, to counter what these growers might uh, contend. So if we fast forward to 1975, this is a huge year because uh, Huerta and the UFW were instrumental in the passage of the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which was the first law of its kind granting California farm workers the right to collectively organize and bargain for wages and better working conditions. But the really interesting thing is when it comes to unionizing and organizing, because, oh, finally in 1975, they're legally granted the ability to do so. Because of the agribusiness system and the fact that a lot of these migrant workers, by virtue of being migrant workers, 
They were employed by many growers. They weren't just working with one one big company or even like one sort of more manageable industry. So the UFW had to kind of figure out a new way to organize beyond typical union locals. Right. And so it ended up that people at each ranch would elect their own ranch committee and then each field office established a service center to assist members. And I mean, they were getting basic things like, can we have a bathroom? You know, can we have a place to sleep that's not a shack that's in danger of falling down at any moment that the wind blows? I mean, they again were starting with just the basic needs of these workers just to keep them safe and healthy. Yeah. And then as they developed this ranch committee system, Huerta in the 80s was also influential in developing, for instance, a radio station for them to help all of them keep better connected. Um, because back then, y'all, they didn't have the Internet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so things like a radio station were also really important for keeping them all informed and all organized as well. And also, if there are any like union experts and union historians listening, we welcome your input on all of the fascinating details that I know that we are glossing over because... Um, this isn't stuff I've never told you about um, unions, <laughs> because we haven't even gotten to the point yet in which, I mean, uh, what I was waiting for the entire time reading a lot of this research and listening to interviews with Huerta was like, but what about gender? What about sexism? This is a woman who was a kind of an unlikely spokesperson to begin with, even though she took sort of second seat to Chavez, as was the plan. But she was doing work and in a position that women had never done before. Hands down, period, done. Yeah, and the way she easily just kind of cut through the water, you would think like, oh, well, she must not, there must not have been any barriers. Surely, uh, surely it wasn't that hard of a time. No, people, it was, it was a difficult time. And, and she did talk to the LA Times about the sexism that she faced, especially because she was in a leadership position. She says, sexism is always so painful because it comes from the people who are close to you. I think sexism is much more painful for women than racism is. Until we get majority representation, it's always going to be hard for us. And I mean, she definitely notes that Chicana and other minority women faced the triple threat of race, class, and gender discrimination. And so... You know, even in times when she wasn't facing outright massive sexism, she was still experiencing like offhand comments from people around her. And so this was a very real thing that she had to overcome. And she certainly did and did not let it stop her. Well, and also within her community, the kind of sexism that she faced more often than someone at a United Farm Workers board meeting not wanting to say listen to her was more of a community shaming at being a Catholic divorce, single mom, eventually of 11, who really didn't let motherhood stop her from traveling the country. And a lot of people accused her of being a bad mother. They're like, oh, she, how could she do that to her kids? They don't, you know, have a stable home. They're traveling around everywhere. They're living off of donations. I mean, she's just failing as a mom because she was also... When she would leave by herself, 
she would have to have, you know, other family members watch after them. She wasn't always by their side. Yeah. And she essentially kind of took a vow of poverty, so to speak. I mean, you know, uh, she lived off of donations. Her family didn't have much money. She got paid maybe five dollars a week for her efforts uh, to support farm workers. And in talking to AARP, two of her oldest kids admitted that the whole thing wasn't easy. Sure. Moving around, being poor. Having their mother miss their birthdays wasn't easy, and they feared for her life. But the lessons that they learned from watching her go out and fight for people's lives and their health and their safety taught them about the importance of helping people, building a community over having material things. And also in regard to her personal life, she caught a second wave of flack with her relationship with Cesar Chavez's brother, Richard, with whom she had children and never married. But she says basically by that point, she was a feminist and she really didn't care what people thought of her. I mean, she was so invested in her activism as well by that point that it sort of made no difference. And I think that she had also lived for so many years being called a bad mother. She was like, well, you know what? I'm just doing me, guys. Um, but when it comes to feminism, she really didn't identify with it initially. She talks about how when she first heard about women's lib, she thought of it as just a white middle class phenomenon, which very much goes to what we've talked about many times on the podcast about how a lot of times mainstream in quotes feminism has been um, overly focused on the voices and experiences of white middle class women who have more liberty to choose. Whereas across the country in California, you have women like Huerta living on $5 a week with 11 children fighting for the rights of women who don't necessarily have the liberty to choose. The kind of choice that white feminists in New York might have been fighting for at the time weren't even on the radar of the day-to-day lives of these women of color working in the fields. Yeah, and her approach to feminism was really shaped by witnessing the civil rights movement itself. And she talks to PBS about how she sort of had this moment of clarity, realizing at some point that many of us in the civil rights movement were out there fighting for our people, but we weren't fighting for our women. And so she says she sort of starts to have this realization that fighting for women's rights and being a feminist is just as important as fighting for workers' rights or the rights of people in various racial and ethnic communities. And she was also influenced, too, by her friendship with Gloria Steinem, because Steinem and others very much supported the UFW and the boycott and the efforts that they were making in order to help out those families as well. And speaking of the UFW, I mean, she did recognize sexism within her own movement, within that uh, Chicano civil rights movement going on. Um, she recalls in an interview to Makers about a UFW board meeting in which someone made just a casual sexist comment. And she was like, huh, I'm going to start taking a tally in this meeting and see how many casual sexist comments are made. Because, you know, she was, I think, the only woman or one of the only women in the room at the time. And she counted up 58 sexist comments. So at the end of the meeting, when Chavez says, OK, does anybody else have anything else to add? She raises her hand and says, hey, um, I counted up 58 sexist comments. And I think that that's ridiculous. Essentially, I'm very much paraphrasing her. <laughs> 
but she raised awareness to it. And yeah. she said the next time she tallied up like 23, the next time it was a dozen. And finally, she said it got to the point to where, yes, the members were kind of on their toes in board meetings about the way that they spoke about women. And she mm-hmm. said, it, and then it once once their awareness was raised, once they realized they were doing it and that it had a negative impact, they over time, they just stopped. Well, because the whole thing is, that she's pointing out is how ridiculous it is to have these sexist attitudes and especially sexist comments because women were critical and should be critical to movements like this. And she really encouraged Chavez to get more women involved in organizing, negotiating and overseeing the ranch committees. After all, his wife, Helen, was involved in the strikes and the protests. And at the same time, she maintains that Chavez was always conscious of the importance of women's involvement within the movement. Yeah, I mean, it was crucial to both of them to get entire families on board. You can't do this successfully if you have the husbands, but you don't have the wives and the children. And that's also part of the motivation for keeping everything as nonviolent as possible so that women and children would be welcome at those picket lines. And it's also well known that sometimes Chavez and Huerta would have loud disagreements, but Huerta maintains that they had a healthy working relationship and she never felt demeaned by him by virtue of her gender. And I mean, she, she found his sometimes, uh, like almost unwitting sexism to, to be laughable. Maybe it's more just because she's looking at retrospect. Maybe it was a little more infuriating at the time. But in speaking to the LA Times, she said, Cesar once said, you know, Dolores, I treat you and Cecilia, who's another UFW board member, different. And I said, yes, it's called male chauvinism. And he started laughing, but he was really good about having women in positions of power. People would ask why, and he'd say, because they do the work. And it was in doing that work in the 1980s that Huerta was actually on the receiving end of violence during a protest. She was severely beaten in San Francisco by a police officer. And this prompted her to step back from union organizing for a while. And as a born-again feminist, she says, she began to stump for the Feminist Majorities Project to get more Latinas in office. So we really see this like crystallization of all of her activism efforts. And when it comes to her legacy, uh, I mean, a lot of people routinely ask her the question of, I mean, are you a little jealous, essentially, of Cesar Chavez getting all the glory for all of this work that you were alongside him uh, to do? Are you bummed out that there's a Cesar Chavez day, but not a Dolores Huerta day, for instance? And she pretty much says no. I mean, from the get go, it was decided that Chavez would be the spokesperson because the movement needed a face and her face was also prominent as well. But he was the guy. And when he volunteered to be the spokesperson, she said, "Okay, do that. I mean, I think she was so much more concerned with the day to day lives of the people Mm -hmm. that she was working on behalf of. She never wanted to make herself out to be a celebrity. And even when she was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, she said this medal is given to me on the backs of thousands and thousands of other people. I yeah. wasn't out in those fields working. They were. 
Yeah, but she was the five foot nothing spitfire who was leading all of these people into a movement. Well, so in 1999, she retired from the UFW. And a couple years later, in 2002, she founds the Dolores Huerta Foundation to promote social justice through community organizing. But it's not like she was just sitting around, like, kicking up her heels, saying, okay, been there, done that, I've done everything I can. That same year that she established her foundation... She led a 165-mile march to convince California's governor to support legislation to benefit farm workers, and it ended up being a successful effort. Yeah, and she's received numerous honors and awards and medals, and most recently, there was a statue of her and Chavez unveiled in Napa Valley. So she certainly isn't without her her prizes that, that she's been given over time. Um, but really, when you listen to the most recent interviews with her, what matters the most is continuing the work and helping the people. And also, in terms of being a born-again feminist, in reminding women to own their work and their accomplishments and their achievements as well. So we have some wise words from Dolores Huerta to end on, in which she says, We as women have to put big lights around our accomplishments, right? And around our ideas and not feel egotistical when we do that, because it's a way of letting the world know that, yes, we as women can accomplish great things. Yeah, those are wonderful words. That's such an inspiration. I just got a little teary just reading that, Caroline. Yeah. And and she's such a fascinating figure. And I and I hate that we did have to gloss over so much history, but I hope that this serves as an inspiration to go learn more, both about Huerta and about the movements that she spearheaded alongside Chavez. Um, and so I hope that we hear from listeners who know more about her. We, we got a very excited response and we told people that we were doing this episode. And so if you have more details into, into Huerta herself or more insight into the movements that she led, we'd love to hear them. And by the way, she still boycotts table grapes. Really? Because agribusiness and its relationship to migrant workers has not exactly improved over the years because those contracts always go back and forth. Yeah, back when she led that 165-mile march through 100-degree weather in California, she told a reporter, somebody has to do the work. And she said, in organizing, you're not going to reach every person, but you just have to keep pushing for the next one. Yeah, and this absolutely echoes our podcast on women in farming and agriculture and how even more important it is to empower those women to feed us as well. So with that, we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I've got an older letter here from Vanessa, but I wanted to share it because, Vanessa, in case you're listening You should be really happy right now because uh, she writes, I just finished listening to how teaching became a woman's profession. And it occurred to me, I don't think you guys have done women in the labor movement. So much great history there. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, Bread and Roses, Mother Jones, Dolores Huerta, garment workers, teachers, nurses, hospitality workers, all unions driven by women. 
SEIU, one of the biggest unions in the country, has their very first woman president right now. You could do multiple episodes if you wanted, but one would be great. So, Vanessa, hopefully this look at Dolores Huerta's life is a good kickoff to focusing on more of those topics you suggested as well. And I have a letter here from Fernanda that was responding to our Latina feminism episode last year. Uh, she says, after listening to that episode, I had to write you some feedback. I agree that Latinas face different challenges than European descendant feminists, but I identify strongly with feminism, though I recognize that not every woman in my country has it as easy as I do. In my community, I have white privilege. In Mexico, it's not uncommon to discriminate against tan-skinned people because of their phenotypically obvious indigenous descendants. Also, I live in the city, have access to education, currently in med school, and health care. The discrimination is far more noticeable on the mainstream media, where most of the news presenters, journalists, and musicians are all white and cisgender. LGBTQ rights are far from being recognized when only in a couple of states gay marriage is legal, and in every state, people from this community suffer discrimination in terms of jobs, education, and even health care access. I strive for bringing health care and support to those who don't possess it while being a bisexual, cisgender Mexican woman. I hope one day women in my beloved country are able to live in freedom and that feminism also brings relief to the men who are oppressed by machismo. Thanks for shining a light of education and humor into my everyday life. And thank you, Fernanda. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can read more about Dolores Huerta, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 